As you're being seated, the young children who will be taking part in the children's lesson can meet their teachers in the back. And if there's anybody left after that, please turn to Matthew 26. Older kids that are sticking around, there are red folders on the table at the back of the room with some fill-in-the-blank kind of sermon notes to help you track with what's going on. Adults can grab one too if they feel the need. I won't be offended. Matthew chapter 26. This is the last sermon that we'll be doing in Matthew before we take a little break during Advent and the first week, first month of the new year. And we'll return in time to read the, the narrative of the last days and the resurrection of Jesus. But now, this morning, we'll be looking at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the word of the Lord will never pass away. There's a TV show my wife and I have been watching lately called Leverage. And what I like about that show, it's, it's, uh, it's a series about a group of con men and con women who, who come together and uh, through a series of circumstances have realized they want to use their con artist skills to help people. No longer do they want to cheat people out of their money. They want to, they want to get back at the people who are cheating and harming and abusing the little guys. And it's, it's sort of a Robin Hood sort of scenario, and it's fun to watch their schemes and their plans and how these con artists work to trick people. But in nearly every episode, I've started to notice, uh, there's always a point where the plan seems to fall apart. Uh, somebody who's undercover gets exposed, uh, somebody gets hurt, something happens that, that seems like the plan's falling apart and the bad guys discover them, and ha ha ha, the bad guys have got you, they're going to win. And that's the feeling you get in these verses if you're one of Jesus' disciples. God's plan, if his plan is to rescue his people and to establish Jesus as king, then you see there's this whole plot to kill him. And he says, not only is there a plot, but it's going to work. I'm going to be delivered up to be crucified. And it looks like the plan of God is coming unraveled. It's falling apart. It's going to fail. But in that TV show, Leverage, it's almost always revealed at the end that the plan was supposed to look like it was falling apart. The failure of the plan was the plan. And in the end, they're always victorious. The bad guys get their defeat. When we look at our own lives and when we look at the world, do you ever struggle to really believe in your heart that God's plan is on track? That it's really working out the way it's supposed to? If God is really in control, then how can this be true? How can this be happening? We need to learn from these verses in Matthew 26 about how God not only knows what will happen, but as we just sang a few minutes ago, What comes apart from his command? Not only is God aware of what will happen, he is in control of what will happen. And if that's true of the worst, most painful tragedy in history, the the death of Jesus, how much more then can we trust God to be in control of whatever circumstances we face? Jesus mentions that his death will come at the time of the Passover. That's, That's not a coincidence. That's not a quirk in timing. 
The Passover was the great act of of rescue of God's people uh, being delivered out of slavery in Egypt and led into the promised land. And and he called them to celebrate it every year as a festival, a time, uh, coincidentally for our timing, of thanksgiving. It was a, a feast, a celebration of thanksgiving and remembrance of what God had done. And it is by design that God chose that particular celebration, that time, to carry out His great act of rescue, which shows that God is fully in control of all things at all times. So as we face our own season of thanksgiving, it's fitted that we be reminded of what it is that God has made the foundation of our thanksgiving and thankfulness. Let's look at the Passover Let's look at the Passover and see how God's deliverance from Egypt teaches us about his deliverance of us through Christ and how both of those events teach us about the beauty and the power of God's plan and what that means as we live according to his purposes. The first thing we need to see in this passage is that God's plan includes the enemy's plan. We see this in verses 3 and 4. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. It's not news to us, the readers, that Jesus had a target on his back. We know how the story plays out. And the enemies of God's kingdom, though they don't consider themselves the enemies of God, nevertheless, they're opposing God's kingdom by opposing God's servant, Jesus. And if this was any other kind of literature, a a spy novel, a a tragic romance, a war epic, and and we found out that there was a plot against the main character, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? But when we're talking about God's kingdom, such subterfuge and and plotting is is not the problem we think it is. In Isaiah chapter 8, the enemies of God are warned, devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Though they plot together and take counsel together, though the enemies and even the enemy of God has a plan for destruction, it will fail. Why? Because God has already accounted for it, not just to avoid it, not just to go around it, but to actually include it in His own purposes. God's plan includes the enemy's plan. When we know that God knows everything that will happen, and we know that His plans include even the hard stuff that we face, it doesn't take away the pain that we feel in the hard circumstances, but it does make us better able to bear it. Before the Passover in Egypt, God already foretold to Moses and His people that Pharaoh would refuse to listen. He knew how the story was going to play out. And that Pharaoh would refuse to let them go until the Lord had finished showing his power and judgment. And the scripture even tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God could carry out his plan of deliverance. Wrap your brain around that for a minute. And it's the same with the death of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, when facing persecution and difficulty, the disciples in the early church looked to Psalm 2, and they quoted Psalm 2 in Acts 4, and they prayed in this way, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Here we see that plotting together like like the chief priests and the elders were doing. For truly, they they go on to pray, truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The plot against Jesus, the schemes of the enemy, were planned ahead by God. When things seem out of hand, when the powerful and mighty of this world oppose God and His people, and when the proud prevail and the righteous are condemned, this may seem like the work of the enemy, and and indeed it is, but God's plan includes the enemy's plan. We see this beautifully described for us in the life of Joseph in the Bible. Like Jesus, Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was unjustly punished for sins he had not committed. He was left as dead, and then, unexpectedly, beyond all hope, he rose to great power and authority. And God did all that in order to save the children of Abraham. So when his brothers came to him begging for mercy for their betrayal, Joseph replies in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God somehow found a way to turn it into good. Is that what the words say there? You meant it for evil, but God somehow overcame that evil with good. Is that what the words say? What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What they meant for evil, God did not just somehow turn into good. He didn't overcome it with good. God meant all that happened for a good that Joseph and his brothers never imagined. Does that make evil less evil? Does that make pain less painful? Does that make sin less sinful? No. But it does remove the power of those things to threaten us beyond God's power and intention to redeem. No scheme of the enemy can thwart God's plan. No wound of the evil one cannot be cured in God's kingdom. No sin, not even yours, is beyond the knowledge of God and the grace of God. And so the enemy, Satan, the devil, has no power beyond what God allows him to have and is not able to do anything that God does not allow him to do. There's a beautiful uh, story in a book called The Silmarillion. If you've heard anybody do Lord of the Rings illustrations or if you've ever read the Lord of the Rings or seen the movies, uh, the author, J.R.R. Tolkien, was a, he was a believer. He was a brother in Christ and he intentionally worked his faith into a lot of his writings. And he wrote a book um, that was never published before his death but was published afterwards called The Silmarillion. And it's got a lot of the ancient uh, backstory of what goes on in the Lord of the Rings. Going all the way back to what he made as the creation story of Middle-earth, where the Lord of the Rings takes place. And it's one of the most beautiful pieces of literature I've seen. Because in this creation story, it tells the story of the one true God who who first created what we would call the angels. I'm using our language, not his. He's got funny made-up words for these things. He created the angels, and and then he taught them to sing. And he introduced a melody, and he caused all these mighty angels to sing together. But there was one of them, Melchor. Melchor wanted to sing his own song. And so he introduced a sound that was in, in, in dis- disharmony with everything else that was being sung. And, and some of those around him, if you've ever been in a choir and somebody starts singing off key and you start to adjust to that one who's off key, that's what happens. Melkor sings this, this horrible tune. 
because he wants his own thing. And others kind of join him in. And just when it seems like the whole thing is going to fall apart, the one, the conductor, the one true God introduces a new theme to the music that completely includes all the horrible stuff that was going on. All that disharmony and cacophony now is a part of the melody. And Melkor's angry, so he starts something else, and he tries to sing something else that's even worse, and, and, and the one God again changes the melody so that the whole thing sounds beautiful, and it happens again and again until it reaches this grand chord at the end where everything is resolved, and it's beautiful. And then the one God says to the angels, he says, everything that we just sang, you're going to see it. It's history. History is going to play out the song you just sang. And then he looks at Melkor, the one who had tried to sing his own song and tried to mess everything up. And he says, and you will see that no theme may be played that doesn't have its uttermost source in me. And no one can alter the music in my despite. For he that attempts this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. No one, not a criminal, not a politician, not a billionaire, not Pharaoh, not the Pharisees, not even Satan himself has power to change the plan of God. God's plan includes the enemy's plan. And because of that, you, child of God, will always be secure, no matter what happens. The next thing we see about God's plan here. Not only does it include the enemy's plan, but God's plan requires a sacrifice. In verse 2, Jesus says, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is actually further evidence that Jesus is aware of the plot against him. He knows the enemy's plan, and he's not doing anything to avoid it. He said earlier in John 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus tells us that the crowds, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one's taking my life away from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus knows he's about to die. That's the plan. The enemy's plan, yes, but God's plan before that. And that's where the Passover connection becomes even more clear. The Passover was the night before the exodus out of Egypt and God's people enslaved, abused, captive, God said, tonight I'm going to judge Egypt and free you. And he promised to send his judgment throughout the whole nation of Egypt to every household to strike down the firstborn of every single family, every flock in the field, every house. But for those who trusted God's word, he said, if you sacrifice a lamb and put its blood around the doorframe, then, then my destroyer will pass over that house. The lamb's death would be accepted in the place of the one who should have died in that home. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us, the church, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He is our Passover lamb. And you might be thinking, if you hadn't heard about this before, you're thinking, wow, it's neat that the death of Jesus is so much like the Passover. And you're right, but you've got it a little bit backwards. You see, the death of Jesus was not ever meant to imitate the Passover. It's the other way around. The Passover was given to God's people in order to teach them and prepare them and foreshadow God's plan to deliver his people through the death 
of his son, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. God was teaching his people here, just as he did after Adam and Eve sinned and could not cover their nakedness with the the designs they'd made with the fig leaves. God had to do what? He had to sacrifice an animal to cover their sin and their shame. And he taught Abraham and Isaac as Isaac was to be taken up and killed. God had to provide a sacrifice to take Isaac's place. And with, with the law, and again, and again, and again, God is teaching his people that his plan requires a sacrifice. This is what's interesting about verse 5 in our passage. The chief priests and the elders want to arrest and kill Jesus, but they say, but not during the feast, because there'll be an uproar among the people. During the feast of the Passover, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, swelled with, with pilgrims, as many as a million filling that city. And if they chose to arrest Jesus publicly, the crowds who who liked Jesus and his teachings might get upset and stop it. But God's plan requires a sacrifice. And the death of Jesus is necessary if his people are to be saved. And so though they were trying to avoid the consequences of their action by not arresting Jesus publicly, they were playing right into God's plan because he requires a sacrifice. God allows their plan to move forward because it's how he accomplishes his bigger picture. The death of Jesus is not an accident. It's not a tragedy. It's not something that God somehow turns into good. The death of Jesus is a necessity. It's a planned act of God that must take place if we are to be saved. Because the angel of judgment passed through Egypt that night of the Passover, that angel was going to take the life of someone in every home. And so in every house, there would either be a dead lamb or a dead firstborn child. The firstborn of the house, if they were to be saved, there had to be a sacrifice. The lamb must die. And likewise for us, because of sin, all humanity lives under the judgment of God. Death comes for us all. Not just physical death, but eternal death and separation from God. And unless another dies in our place, we will experience final, total judgment. And so God's plan requires a sacrifice. But what does this all lead to? What's it all about? God's plan includes the enemy's plan. God's plan requires a sacrifice, but what does it lead to? What is the end game? To understand that, we have to look at the Passover story again. God has joined these events for a reason, the Passover and the crucifixion. If we follow the Passover story, why did the Lord want his people to leave Egypt? Why did he deliver them? Was it simply because he wanted them out of slavery? No, it was, there was more to it than that. We, we all know the story. Moses goes up to Pharaoh and he stomps, he pounds that staff on the ground and he says to Pharaoh, what? Let my people go. That's only the first half of the sentence. Did you know that? God said, go to Pharaoh and say, in in Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. It's not just about being delivered from something. It's being delivered to something. There's a purpose. There's a goal. And so God does not deliver his people without having a plan for them after deliverance. God's plan is, includes the enemy's plan, it requires sacrifice, and it leads to a new life. 
He saves them so that they can serve him. Instead of serving Pharaoh, they will serve the Lord. Whereas before they had been building literally the kingdom of Egypt, now they will be building the kingdom of God. And so it is with God's plan of salvation for us through Jesus. So when Jesus says in verse 2, the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified, we have to understand the implications of that for us. If I asked you to finish this thought, see, now you're going to be hesitant to say anything out loud because of what I just did. But if I asked you to finish this thought, Jesus died on the cross so that I could be, you'd probably say something like, forgiven of my sins, right? And you would not be wrong. But again, there's more to it than that. That's just the beginning. In 1 Peter 2, the Apostle Peter writes that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, be forgiven, and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The Son of Man was crucified not just so that your sins would be forgiven, but so that you would live life in a new and different way, so that you would live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Being healed doesn't just mean that your wound is gone. If you had a wound that kept you from using your arm correctly or had a wound that kept you from from running or doing other things, being healed doesn't just mean the wound is gone. It means that you can now live the way you're supposed to live. The pain, the incapacity, the weakness is no more. You stop living as a wounded person and start living as a healthy person. We're not just delivered from something. We're delivered to something. A person who is still captive to sin, wounded by sin, enslaved to sin, lives with a wounded soul. Fear, addictions, anger, criticism, judgmentalism, anxiety, all these and many more are expressions of a soul that still needs to be delivered. But the gospel is the power of God to deliver you from that. Not just to forgive you, not just to forgive you, but to actually change you, to make you able to live differently the way God calls you to live. Let my people go, deliver them from their sins so that they might serve me. That's the call. Because God has rescued in you in Jesus, you have his spirit in you. It's not something you might have, not something you get with some later experience. All who trust in Christ have His Spirit, and God dwells in you. And just as we confessed earlier in our worship, and our confession of faith, those promises mean that we have everything we need to live the life God has called us to live. If God has called you to do it, you are able to do it. That is good news. But pastor, I can't control my temper. The Spirit of God can. And the Spirit of God in you makes you able to do what you know He wants you to do. Jesus was crucified to make it so. But pastor, I I can't help but feel afraid. No, the Spirit of God in you is not a spirit of fear. The Lamb that died in your place gives you a spirit of power. But pastor, I can only be happy if I live at a certain standard of living. No, the Spirit of God in you gives you, has given you abundant life that no material resources would ever give you. 
and has given you a contentment and a happiness that, that nothing on earth can buy. At the Passover, the people of God were not just freed from slavery, they were called into service. Their freedom made them able to live the life that God had planned for them. Any gospel you hear that only speaks of forgiveness and eternal life, forgiveness and eternal life is incomplete. It's missing the life, the abundant life of following God that comes between forgiveness and eternal life with Him. The good news is not just that you're forgiven and will go to heaven when you die. Those things are true, amen, and we are thankful. But the gospel is also that you're freed from sin to live the abundant life of following Jesus. Paul writes to the Christians in Romans 6, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, again, let my people go so that they might serve me instead of you. Now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit that you get from that, from your freedom, leads to sanctification, to becoming holy, to following and obeying God, and its end, eternal life. Don't believe a gospel that that cuts out everything in between forgiveness and eternity. Because the the path from forgiveness to eternity is not drudgery. It's not moroseness. It's not a sad, necessary thing we have to endure. It is a joyful life of following God. The new life that God's plan leads to. You might feel like, if if you're looking back at the verses that we started with, you might feel like we've gone a a little bit off track, you know, a little bit too much, covering a lot of ground that's not there in the passage that we've looked at, but I don't think that's really the case. In these few verses that come before the last days of Jesus' life, if we did not know how the story played out, and all we read was that Jesus would be crucified, and the scheme, the plot was already in motion, that in itself would be a defeat. Until we hear him say Passover. Because Passover is the reminder to God's people that whatever the enemy has planned, whatever Pharaoh had in mind, God had already planned it out and included that in his plan. And that there would be a sacrifice for the salvation and deliverance of God's people. And that the end result of all that was not defeat, but a new life. When we understand Jesus' death in those terms, These words in Matthew become hopeful. There was a time a number of years ago before kids, before I was married, still a young single guy in college, and I was doing some missionary work for a summer in Eastern Europe. And uh, as a part of our missionary work, we actually had to cross a large mountain lake. And uh, it was evening, and we just found a guy who had a big enough boat for our team and paid him some money, and and we got on the boat with him, and we were about halfway across this lake. Too far for any of us to swim. It was a big lake. Mountains all around. It gets dark. Starts to, the wind starts to blow. The boat starts to rock. And I'm, you know, we're all getting seasick. But, but we're still headed towards shore until the engine stopped. And apparently, as we learned later, some fishing line had gotten tangled up in the propeller and, and you just, you know, stopped the whole boat. And the wind is getting harder and, and we're getting nervous. And then our guide who speaks very little English, uh, sees what's happened at the engine. We're, we're just dead in the water. And he just starts taking off his clothes. He strips down to his skivvies. He takes a knife and puts it in his mouth, and he starts to climb off the boat. 
We're like, what is happening? You know, are we going to drown here? And he, he sees our faces. I mean, we are seasick and scared. And he just, he, I, I will never forget this man's smile. He had the biggest, brightest smile. He takes the knife out of his mouth and he, he says, don't worry. This has happened before. This will happen again. It's okay. Takes the knife in his mouth and dives in the water. And, and he, he goes in, he, you know, he cuts, cuts the uh, line off, he gets the engine fixed, gets started, gets us to shore, everything was fine. That's what these verses tell us. Whatever you're going through, whenever it seems like everything's out of control and God's plan is off the rails, look to the crucifixion, look to the Passover, God is assuring you, this has happened before. This will happen again. And everything's going to be fine because God's plan includes the enemy's plan. It requires the sacrifice and it will lead to a new life. Those are words of hope wherever you are in life that God is in control. Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, though the darkness hide thee, we still worship and rejoice because God is in control. With thankful hearts, let us pray to him this morning. Our gracious Father, you are good to us. You are more powerful than we realize. And though we mourn, though life is hard, though, though things are confusing, though we feel weak and powerless, you're in control. None of this surprises you. Nothing happens apart from your command. And you know where you are taking us. Give us rest in that. Give us confidence in that. And by your Spirit, lead us faithfully in your plan because of that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.